So I was looking at a um, um, package of catalogs that a friend of mine had saved up today. And uh, just browsing through, see which catalogs there were and which ones I wanted to look at. And I noticed there's one called The Territory Ahead. The Territory Ahead is a pretty good catalog. And uh, I thought about, uh, probably that's a question that's come up in many people's minds today about what is the territory ahead here and where are we going? And I began to play with the idea of uh, uh, what sort of exploration we were doing, kind of exploring the terrain of the heart. I remembered that a few weeks ago I saw a um, an interview with some people who had just finished um, a um, an exploration of Antarctica, and maybe you heard them or saw them in one of those news clips of them, and um, it was tremendously exciting. Here, this group of people uh, undertook to explore a certain part of Antarctica, and. Um, they met with unexpected squalls on the way, really tremendously high winds. And so it's very exciting to hear their story of how they were for days in a tent camped on the way in the middle of Antarctica. And uh, I thought it was very exciting. I remembered that story today, and I thought about how exciting and thrilling it was that they were going in new places. And then I thought how exciting and thrilling it is that all of us are going in new places, and that... I felt excited this morning, those of you who uh, met with me in interviews know that at the end of the second interview, I was really excited. I said, look what we're all doing. We've all embarked on this journey to explore the parameters of the heart, to look where does it end. It's like mapping it and say, here it's open, here it's closed. This is a free passage. This is a hard passage. We've only begun to explore. All of us, myself as well, of course, because we are all doing this. And what's more, we're all doing it all the time. We're not just doing it when we're here. So we come say, ready, set, go now. I'm going to open my heart. It's the challenge of the whole life to open the heart. Now we get to have this special time, which is extraordinary, the special gift in our life of having this as the only thing we have to do. Usually we have to do this major and monumental job in the middle of juggling eight plates in the air. This, at least, we somehow start out with less chores to do, just this one, this one exploration. And I thought to myself, well, we have uh, at least, uh, we have in common with those Antarctica explorers the excitement of the journey, and we have at least two things that are different from them. Uh, they had unexpected storms. We have expected storms. They are part of the journey. We do plan on them happening. I was thinking when I was in my groups this morning with the folks who were there, how um, when we planned this retreat, and when we met uh, the night before it began, and we planned who would talk on what night, and I said, okay, I'd be on the third night, and we all said together, so you'll do a talk on the hindrances, right? Because we expect that the weather will change by the second or the third day, and someone should talk about how you deal with the climate as you progress in this journey through the terrain of the heart. So one thing that's different is we expect that there will be storms. 
The other thing that's different is that the people on the Antarctica trip are going from A to B. They start out somewhere and they're moving away from there and going to some distant place. I think we are going the other way. We are going from here to more here. We really hope that we're going from here to the center of our lives, really to the center of our hearts, where it actually can be quite storm-free, or where the storms can go on and we can sail through them. That's actually probably more appropriate to say. So we've all started, and it's really exciting. It's uh, We come to discover that this is the most natural place for us to be, that it isn't some uh, particular skill or talent, benevolence, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, isn't uh, some aren't things that we have to take lessons in. With things that we have to remember, are the birthright of our heart, and that when they are not manifest, it's because we're confused, and frightened, tired. So this is an opportunity to practice in a way that cuts through that confusion and takes away whatever veils keep us from what we most naturally are. It's a great discovery to discover that each of us is born with that birthright. We do it really in two ways with working with these phrases. We incline the heart We incline the mind in the direction of the benevolence that we are hoping to discover is already there. And we work in this particular way with these phrases, with this resolve, because it's the very working that establishes the kind of balance of mind, and in fact the concentration of mind, that allows the veils to dissipate just of themselves. So that as we discover today and yesterday and tomorrow the different things that come up, the obstacles in the path, there will be ways that we can relate to those obstacles, be different kinds of immediate antidotes to the mind of confusion or tiredness or the mind of fret and restlessness or the mind of doubt, the mind of lust, the mind of aversion. There will be different specific antidotes. And the most immediate and available antidote will be the antidote of loving-kindness, really forgiveness, really understanding and compassion for yourself. One of the things that all of these difficult storms have in common is that they're difficult storms, and they're unpleasant. And for me, one of the immediate places of rest in the middle of a storm is remembering how unpleasant it is, how much rather I would be happy. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be free of suffering. May I be safe. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I live with ease. The very coming up of the storm conditions for me a greater resolve for practice. Lots of people brought up today that they were surprised that the uh, hindrances came up immediately, just when they were settling down. 
I don't actually think that's a surprise. I think that just as we are settling down, we're particularly vulnerable. Really what's been happening in our life is most available to us. The first days of settling down here, our body isn't quite settled. The, the stories of our life are right on top. As we settle down, even before we've begun to say phrases, the very being here is conducive to a settling of the mind. Just because there are so few things to do, just because it's quiet, just because there aren't stimuli coming in and ways to divert ourselves. I remember after I had done my first retreat years ago now, telling a friend of mine, uh, hoping that they would, um, well, who knows what I was hoping, Uh, maybe hoping that they would be uh, awed by me. I told about how difficult the schedule was and how early I got up and how long I sat still and how late I went to sleep and how little a tea we had at the end of the afternoon. and Whatever, I thought that they would be very impressed with that Spartan regimen. And that wasn't what was, impressed. what was impressive. He said to me, I can't believe you sat alone with your mind for two weeks. It's very challenging to do that. And it's very challenging to work at making these resolves. A number of people who came today said, this is really hard, you know, Vipassana, you just come, it's hard enough, you be with what is, but this is really hard, you have to do something. So you really do have to do something. And it is a challenge. And the fact that the mind is challenged predictably causes it to respond to the challenge in a variety of ways that cause it to be confused. The variety of ways you probably heard this morning in some of the questions that were in the hall, and those of you who had interviews probably heard them in the interviews. We get confused by sleepiness, torpor. We get confused by restlessness and agitation. We get confused by, the fancy word is aversion. We don't think of that so much. We think, boy, am I grumpy. Irritated with everything. How come I'm irritated in the middle of a metta retreat? Should be loving thinking all loving thoughts, and instead I'm feeling grumpy as anything. Or we get captivated by a lust, something that we feel we must have in order to feel comfortable. And of course, whenever we get captivated or fatigued or caught in a fret or in an aversion, we get really unhappy. We think, I'm never going to be able to do this. It isn't going to work. It's the wrong practice for me. I'm not the right person to do it. It's the wrong time, it's the wrong season, it's the wrong teachers. It's the group interview, I should have individual interviews, I can't do it, it won't work. There are just all kinds of doubts that come in the mind. And anyway, who believes that this will work? And every possible thought, it's actually the energy of doubt disguised as a story, disguised as a belief that we sometimes believe. So I thought I would talk a little bit about each of them in particular, and then all of them all together. Probably you recognize all of them. I looked around, as I said, all of them. Everybody's probably had a little bit of sleepiness. Sometimes I, I, I think about having a show of hands so everybody would be reassured. But on the other hand, 
It's always complicated, a show of hands. What if you're the one person that wasn't sleepy? You feel like you don't have solidarity with everybody else and won't feel good. Most people feel sleepy a little bit the first couple of days. I felt sleepy a few times yesterday. Felt sleepy a few times sitting up here and a few times nodded over. I thought to myself, I wonder if anybody saw that. I'm actually all right with that. We all traveled long. We all stopped, whatever it was we were doing. We all share that the input level has gone down a lot. I think a lot about computers. Many of us have computers that say, you haven't done anything for a while. I'm going to turn off in 30 seconds unless you do something. And I actually think that the mind is something like that. It says, nothing much happening. I'm checking out. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's really what normally happens. I mean, it's not a mistake. It's just one of those things. It's a dip in energy. And some of us have been really very tired. We live, most of us, much too hurried lives, and we do way too many things. That's why we have to come here every once in a while to reconnect with what's really under all of that flurry. So it would be wonderful if we came and sat down and the mind just settled down to clarity. But it settles down and falls asleep. It goes right past that, right past that nice place of clarity. We'd like it to. And it goes right down to sleepiness. And then by and by, when it catches itself, it wakes up to restlessness. It just, it hovers for a while. It doesn't come that all easily to nice balance. So it happens to everybody. We're overtired. We're putting in less things. It's hard to do this work, too. It is hard to remember the phrases. One of the signs that the mind is tired is you don't remember the phrases so well. It's really interesting because people will say, I have to write them down on a little card. We're all reasonably able to remember four sentences. (laughs) But one of the ways that I could tell that my mind had filled with torpor when I began this practice is I actually said um, a different set of phrases than we presented here. And in the beginning, years ago, when my teacher taught me, she used the phrases that she had learned, which were standard phrases. I think they're Victorian English, uh, early. (laughs) She's laughing because she's my teacher, and she taught them to me. So she never said, do you like these phrases? She just said, do them. So I did. One of the things that's been very helpful to me in my practice career is that when I'm with a teacher and they say, do this, I usually do. It just eliminates a lot of flurry in the mind. So the original phrases that I learned that I do still say, because they are what I've ingrained in my mind, in my heart, my body, are... May I be free of danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. I like those phrases, actually. They've changed over the years because some folks didn't like to say danger. And they said, how much better it would be if we said it in the positive. And some folks said, I don't know what mental happiness is. Why not happy? Or What does ease of well-being actually mean? So, I'm comfortable with them, so I say them. 
But I need to tell you that whole, it's not just a confession if I'm not saying what I said to say. It's a, um, a way of telling you how I could tell that my mind had filled with torpor. I'd be saying my phrases. Sometimes I wouldn't remember them at all. And then I would begin to say them, or think I was saying them. And you remember that the first phrase is, may I be free of danger. And I'd find myself saying, may I be full of danger. (laughs) It was immediately a sign that there was torpor in the mind and that I needed to pay a little bit more attention, wake myself up. Startling to find yourself making that invocation for yourself, may I be full of danger. It's alarming, it wakes you right up. Sometimes people say about the sleepiness, it's too hard for me to do the phrases, I get exhausted and sleepy. Can I go back to just doing vipassana? I think what people mean when they say that is, can I just go back to my breath? You can, of course, if you cannot think of the phrases, just go back to the breath. One of the things that I've discovered is that when I'm very tired, I'll fall asleep on the breath just as well as on everything else, maybe even faster, because I can just slide right to sleep on a breath. I think, can I, when, I, when I think, can I go back to vipassana, it's not can I go back to the breath, get, but can I go back to telling myself the truth of what's happening. And then what it would be, would be letting go of the phrases and saying to myself, I'm really sleepy. I'm so sleepy. I'm really uncomfortable with this sleepiness. I'm in pain. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be free of suffering. And then the phrases come by themselves, those phrases, another set of phrases, but they come really as the natural response to telling myself the truth of my situation, which is I'm not comfortable, I'm distressed. So really, it is going back to vipassana, but it means going back to telling the truth. Vipassana means seeing clearly. This is what's true. I'm sleepy, I'm tired, I'm confused, I'm struggling. I wish I weren't. May I be happy, peaceful. The opposite energy of the sleepy energy is fretful energy, mind all over the place. Sometimes it manifests as mind all, just busy mind, mind with lots of stuff happening. It doesn't even have to be troublesome stuff just means a mind full of stuff. One of the things that often happens to me, along with torporous mind on the first day or the second day of a retreat, is a mind where I suddenly remember just dozens of jobs that I didn't do while I was at home. Probably that happened to you too. It's kind of a break in the clouds and our filing system says, you think you're finished? No, 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 you didn't do this and that and the other thing. And so you start to get a big list Or the body feels um, antsy. It's another form of restlessness where you think to yourself, I can't sit here another minute. I can't be in this place another minute. Maybe some of you had that today. I think it's actually the other side of the mind full of torpor. For whatever reason, as the mind settles itself down, it has dips in energy and spurts of energy and dips of energy and spurts of energy, and they manifest 
as a sudden rush of fret or a sudden, a sudden rush of disturbing restlessness, a sudden rush of discomfort. Sometimes they come with a worry as well. Sometimes they feel anxious. Sometimes people think, I'm full of energy, I must be frightened. Maybe I'm anxious. Sometimes it's just energy. Sometimes it's not anxiety. Sometimes people have a sense of, "Uh uh-oh, here I am, this whole week is looming out ahead of me, and I'm pretty sure now that those thoughts or those feelings or that part of my story that I did not want to hear again is about to present itself in the space of this week, and how can I avoid it? And truly, you can't. Or you could, but it would be much harder than letting it come up. One of the things that we hope to do here, really one of the points of practice, is heal the heart. That's what this does. Really allows us, bit by bit, really held up by the balance of a heart that's well-wishing, a heart that's not aversive, a heart that's not barred to the moment allows us to rest in the middle of our lives, in the middle of our stories, and really be able to say to ourselves, this is what's true. This is what is happening in my life, or this is what did happen to me. I can do this. I am doing it. I'm right here and I'm doing it. Because I only have to do this minute right now. And what's actually frightening me is the story about my situation, what it is or what it was. But right here is just fine moment to moment, in the refuge of a peaceful heart, we're always fine. That's one of the things that we discover as we do this. doesn't mean our life changes. What we discover is that our capacity to hold our life changes. I hope that happens for you. I have a lot of faith that it happens. There are lots of times that people have told stories about the healing that comes from letting their story come up with the anxiety about it and just being present to it, letting it be there. The discovery is not that it's less painful than we imagined, but that we really have the heart to hold it. So if this is a time for healing for you, I hope it really is. I hope it works. I have great faith that it works for everybody sometime or eventually. Sometimes it takes a lot of practice. Sometimes it's immediately available. I hope for you it's available soon. So some people this morning in the question and answer period said, I'm so surprised because here all of a sudden I'm grumpy. I see yesterday there were two people who said, yesterday I was filled with the happiness of wishing well, and suddenly this morning, grumpy, get up in a bad mood in the middle of a metta retreat. Actually, it was really two people I know who I, I know away from here whose persona is not grumpy. So it's not as if... Um, it's actually more understandable that they should be surprised by it, that it, it happens. I don't know why it happens. I think it's just, again, 
one of those ways, vagaries of energy in the mind. One of the ways that we complicate it is by taking it seriously. I think that what happens for some reason is that every once in a while, maybe because it's so hard to keep saying these phrases, maybe because we don't always feel behind every single phrase, who knows why? Every once in a while, the mind balks, gets annoyed doing the next phrase, and then it begins to balk at everything, and get annoyed at everything. And then for my own self, I've gotten annoyed at myself for not being able to be in a good place. I have a bad thought about myself. There's a way in which that can escalate. Really like all of the other um, mind states, the best response to discovering that we've become annoyed is to discover where is the metta here and what can I do. It's amazing how people of good heart, all of us, because we're all people of good heart, can get annoyed. Sometimes I think the hardest thing is to keep the mind balanced against the challenge to irritation. That we're so easily pushed, challenged about not getting annoyed. I'll tell you an annoyed story. Um, happened to me this year. And it's actually the right story to tell because it happened to me I was in a really good mood. I'd gone to teach somewhere one night and I thought I had done a really good job of it. So I was feeling really good. And um, I was driving home with my friend Martha, who uh, I love a lot. And we stopped to have a last minute, not last minute, late night dinner at a restaurant that was open late in the evening. And um, while the food was, after we ordered the food, I went to the ladies room. I was washing my hands and looking in the mirror as one does in a public restroom. You look at the person next to you washing their hands, and you look at them in the mirror. You don't look at them over here. (laughs) And I looked at the woman next to me washing her hands, and I watched her take her hands and reach up, and she had her hair tied in a tight knot on the back of her head. And she must have had some pins in it, holding it up in that braid or knot or... And she pulled the pins out and shook her head just as I was watching her. And from a very tight and rather severe haircut, hairdo, her hair just poofed out in the best way. Looked kind of like Farrah Fawcett, remember? <laughs> um, it was very pretty hair. And um, in a, I was feeling really wonderful. I taught well. I was hungry. I was out at a good restaurant with a friend that I love. And in a moment of enthusiasm, I said, you have really beautiful hair. And she looked at me and she said, well, if it makes you feel any better, I'm not happy. (laughs) And she went out. So I stood there, (laughs) and I was startled. I took a little umbrage, actually. I thought to myself, do I look like the kind of person who would feel better knowing that she's unhappy? (laughs) I looked at myself. 
So I was a little bit miffed that she thought that about me. <laughs> so then I went out, I went back to my table, and I uh, told my friend Martha that story. And she got vicariously miffed on my behalf. <laughs> That wasn't so nice, she said. She shouldn't have done that. So then I thought about it a little bit, and I thought, what happened to me is I was startled. I hurt my feelings. Do I look like the kind of person who would feel better to know that she's unhappy? So really I hurt my feelings, and probably the hurt my feelings caused me to take umbrage, get mad. Because I thought to myself, the important thing that she said to me is I'm not happy. And I realized that I have no idea what mind state I had intruded upon when I said what I said in the best of moods. That uh, I don't know whether she had just learned that afternoon that she'd lost her job. I don't know that she was in the ladies' room five minutes after her uh, person had said that their 10-year relationship was over. Um, I don't know whether she's in there five minutes after she's had the first drink that, of alcohol and ten, after ten years of abstinence. I don't know a thing about her. All I know is that she wasn't happy in that moment. And I felt really bad about intruding on her mind state. And for a moment, I thought, well, maybe I should look around this restaurant and find her and go tell her I feel bad about intruding. <laughs> And I realized that would not be a wise idea. Uh, first of all, we'd both feel awkward, and uh, it's a big restaurant, and it would be an awkward thing to do. But then I realized I actually could send her metta. I could wish her well. I had inadvertently hurt her feelings, or startled her mind, and she'd inadvertently hurt mine. So I could wish her well, and I could wish myself well as well, and not take on too much about having intruded on her mind state. I thought to myself, what's the lesson from this? Not to talk to people in ladies' rooms? No, that's not the, not to say to people who have beautiful hair, you have beautiful hair, if you feel like, no, of course. We, we really, if we are hopeful that we'll come out of a positive and happy place in our life, why not say to people, you're beautiful, you are lovely. It's the most wonderful thing is to be able to say to people, you are lovely, you are wonderful, you are beautiful. Everyone thrives from that, except if it's the wrong time. So we should say, and then we should forgive ourselves if inadvertently we have hurt anybody, and forgive them if inadvertently they've hurt us back. I guess I wouldn't have been miffed if um, I, 
I guess I wouldn't have been miffed if um, I'd cut, I would have caught myself in that place of being miffed or taking, taking umbrage, getting mad, if I'd been a little bit more balanced. I probably was a little bit overwhelmed with happiness and not enough balanced. If I'd been somewhat more balanced, I could have said what I said. She could have said what she said, and I could have skipped that whole little interlude of feel annoyed, tell Martha, get Martha annoyed, do that whole thing. Really, what we really hope to be is full of happiness, but a happiness that's really grounded in a kind of equanimity. I'll tell you another story then about not grounded in equanimity. Two weeks ago, I flew home from here, (coughs) from Boston, and uh, I had been, um, uh, I'd actually been away from home for some weeks and teaching, and I was, I was tired. I taught in a bunch of places and uh, traveled from place to place, and I got on the plane, this is the last leg of my journey, I'm going home, and uh, I'd bought the New York Times, which I always love to read, and it was on my lap, and I had my knitting, and it was under my chair, which I always love to do. And the plane took off, and I sat there, and I realized that no uh, feeling arose to take out the knitting or to read the paper. And so right away I made a story for myself. I said, look at that, you've blown out all your wiring, you have no bites left, you have no room to put anything else in. Did I tell you all that because this is an example of a mind full of fret, which makes a catastrophe out of everything. And I caught that right away. I said, wait a minute, that's not true. The truth is, I'm not exhausted, I'm fine. I've had a good time, feel good. I just don't need anything else. That's really the story. The story is not I'm exhausted and I'm losing it. Just I don't need anything else. So I'm sitting there. And I was actually pretty pleased at not needing anything. I mean, it's not so normal that we find ourselves in a place where we don't need anything. It's actually very pleasant. So we're flying along. I'm maybe a little congratulating myself on how much equanimity. Probably congratulating myself. Because by and by, oh, and I look at the people around me. I realized when I make that story in my mind about, see, you're losing it, that's because I have um, a mind embroiderer that lives in my mind that makes catastrophic stories out of most everything, even relaxed mind. I look around and see the people next to me, and I notice the person next to me clicking away on a computer, and he's writing away, and he's got all kinds of stuff. His eyes are fixed on the computer, and he's working away. So I draw a picture in my mind, because I also have a cartoonist in my mind. I have an embroiderer, (laughs) and I have a cartoonist. So I draw a picture around that mind, that man and his computer, and I write under it, man with mind full of energy. Next to him, wrapped up in a blanket all the way up over its head, so I don't know if it's a man or a woman, it's a body. So I say to myself, person with mind full of sleepiness. Draw the picture. I've already drawn the picture of myself, person with mind making frets. Then I finish with that picture. 
Then I look over on the other side of me, across the aisle. Oh, they bring the lunch. They bring the lunch. So the blanket unwraps itself and <laughs> unwraps its lunch, and she starts to eat, and the man next to me puts away his computer, and the three of us are sitting there looking straight ahead, everybody <laughs> eating. Planes are so odd, you know. And I feel very close with these people, intimate. <laughs> Because not only am I sitting very close with them, but I've already named them and I thought about their mind states and feeling very benevolent, sitting there quietly, friendly. And I look across and I see right over here is a man also eating his lunch. And he's watching the uh, movie, which they now have in the back of the seat in front of you on United Airlines. You have to look up there. It's right over here in the seat in front of you. So he's looking at the movie and eating his lunch. And I see he's got peculiar headphones. And then I notice that his headphones are plugged into a CD player. So I see that he is watching the movie and eating his lunch and listening to a CD at the same time. And then in his left hand, because he's eating with his right hand, he's got a paperback novel. And it's like, oh. And he's holding it up at the level with the screen. And so my mind draws a picture around him, and it writes the caption that says, Man with Mindful of Lust. Um, And I laughed out loud. All of a sudden, I drew the cartoon, I amused myself, and all of a sudden, here I am, sitting quietly, and all of a sudden, I do, ha, ha, ha. So then I'm getting embarrassed, because these folks next to me, here I am, sitting quietly. Who knows what they think about me? I've now laughed about apparently nothing. My TV is not So I'm embarrassed. But the embarrassment caught me up, and I realized, I thought about it, I realized that I had laughed partly out of a, a moment of aversion. As I looked at him, and I had re- before I wrote that caption about man with mindful of lust. I had th- I had the thought because I could see you know where you have cartoons. The first cartoon would be man with mindful of lust, and the second cart the second picture which I drew for myself would be that he would put in one more bite and explode. <laughs> and actually, that's what caused me to laugh. And then after I laughed and I felt embarrassed, I realized that. I actually had had a moment of aversion about him, you know, that, and that the aversion had been something about the lust. And what I had missed was that really he's probably frightened, and he's doing everything possible to keep himself comfortable that he can possibly do, read and watch and listen and eat. I mean, there's not too much left in a public place that you can do <laughs> to keep comfortable. And I really felt badly for him, and I felt bad that I had even made the cartoon. And so I actually, I, I wished him well, and I realized that I had laughed because I was also a little tense. I'm not thrilled about flying. I fly a lot. I'm okay. But I like it when I land at the end of the <laughs> flight. We're all a little bit on edge when we fly, I think. He was really... Um, his story, though, is an example of one of the ways that we respond to challenge 
to the mind when we're uncomfortable, we're trying to make ourselves comfortable. We look for some way that we can get to be comfortable. And we often make the mistake of thinking there must be something out there that can make me comfortable. And really, the only source of real lasting comfort is a relaxed and benevolent heart. There isn't anything out there. There are lots of things that make us feel better for a little bit, but just for a little bit. And there, there are many of them lovely and appropriate and wonderful. Really what lasts is an equanimous and benevolent, really well-wishing heart. So when I looked at him and I realized that I'd had some aversion and that we were both frightened, did some loving-kindness for both of us. May you be happy, may I be happy. So those are four of the energies, energy of lust, energy of aversion, energy of um, fret, energy of um, torpor, energy of doubt. Energy of doubt is a little bit harder to pick up than the other energies because it's not ordinarily visceral. It's uh, described in the text as wobbly mind. The other ones you can really feel when you don't like something, you feel it in your body. And when you want something, you feel yearning in your body, I need something. And when you're sleepy, you certainly feel it. And when you're restless, you certainly feel it. And when the mind wobbles, you don't feel it so much. But the mind makes thoughts that if we're not careful, we believe, makes up thoughts like, I can't do this. This is a wrong practice for me. What is this good for? Is this really working? If I make good thoughts for somebody, will it actually help them? Does it help me? It's only making me more tense. Where is this going? I don't deserve to be happy. That's like one of the thoughts that often comes. What if I get too happy? Maybe I'll get indifferent, and then I won't be able to relate to life well. Those are all just stories, the stories that the mind makes up. I don't think there's such a thing as too happy. The happy that's grounded in equanimity is the same place that enables us to look at the pain of the world and the suffering of the world, and in fact mandates our involvement with the pain and the suffering of the world. And that happiness, that contentment, allows for a complete engagement with the pain and the suffering of the world. That's really what we're hoping to do. Some people said this morning, um, I feel somewhat more vulnerable. And I think that maybe we've used the word vulnerable in the wrong way. Uh, We're supposed to be more vulnerable. More vulnerable is good. I don't think we get more fragile, but more vulnerable in the sense of more alert, to the pain of our own mind and heart, and through that, to the pain of everyone's mind and heart, we get to be really genuinely benevolent. We don't have to convince ourselves to be. It is the place that the heart moves to in response to recognizing the pain of the world. That's really where we're going with this, the kind of mind and heart 
that recognizes the whole truth about life and can hold it and respond to it. Be likely to address it, actually impelled to address it in a non-adversarial way. have a way of thinking that the whole of Dharma could be um, said in, I don't remember whether it's 10 or 12 words, something like, when we see clearly, we behave impeccably, out of love, for the benefit of all beings. What we really are trying to do with this practice of inclining the mind and the heart in the direction of loving-kindness is discovered that that's true for us. That when we are calm and clear and focused and alert and awake, we are moved and touched by the truth of the world, the truth of our own stories so that we have compassion for our own selves and our own life, and we have compassion for all beings, and that we forgive ourselves for whatever it was we hesitate to forgive. We are doing the best we can. We forgive our lives. When we have the widest kind of wisdom, we understand that everything happens in a lawful way. We forgive our lives. Forgive even difficult people in our lives, recognizing that everyone who does difficulties is acting out of ignorance and unhappiness. So that's the territory ahead. That's where we're going. There was one other piece that I forgot to say about the men in the Antarctica trip. They said the best thing that we uh, had that carried us through was we had a sense of humor. Said we laughed a lot. When we sat in the tent for days on end, we told each other jokes and kept our morale up. Jokes were funnier than ever, they said. I would like you to have a light heart about what it is that we're doing. This is the most important work we can do in our lives. But it's not grim. It's really wonderful. And catch, when I catch myself, my mind doing all its habitual dances, I'm much more kind to myself. I had that thought about the man in the plane. I laughed at him. I had just a moment of feeling, oh, so we watch you do that. See, you did it because you're a person, that's all. And because you yourself are frightened. Okay, may I be happy. May he be happy. May we all be safe. Oh dear, what do these folks next to me think? doesn't matter. May I be happy. May they be happy. May we all get there safe. What it comes really down to is that the best instruction for working with all the difficulties is the benevolent wish. May I be happy. May I be safe. Whatever the words are that you say for yourself, I'd really like to encourage you to settle on one set of words in the interviews this morning. 
people said was that many people said that it had been their experience that the words just as they were didn't work for them different combination of words worked i think that's wonderful if you find words that are simple that are direct that speak to you that are easy for you to remember i think that's fine i think you should settle on them and not change them very much and say them over and over again the very steadfastness of the saying is a very key point in really calming the mind and the heart this is how it works it's really, really quite wonderful as you say over and over again with or without feeling connected to it with or without great bursts of affect if you say over and over again those same phrases what will happen is that the mind will become more and more concentrated just by itself the being here quietly keeping your schedule minimal helps the mind to become concentrated the very simplicity of our life keeps the mind becoming concentrated a quite wonderful thing happens as the mind becomes concentrated it begins to really manifest five particular qualities that turn out to be the particular antidotes to those five difficult energies hindrance energies afflictive emotions what happens is that the mind becomes calm and calm is the antidote for restlessness what happens is that there's a certain amount of rapture that's just naturally part of a concentrated mind and the rapture is the natural antidote to aversion and when we've concentrated the mind has a quality of one pointedness it stays stays on the phrases it's another good reason to keep them going all the time it's like you want to learn to hum a tune and sometimes people say i can't get this tune out of my mind this is a tune that you want to not be able to get out of your mind so you say it enough so that you are humming this tune all the time and that very one pointedness is the antidote to lust this lust is the energy of the mind that's looking around for something new to satisfy it and one pointedness is the antidote to the looking around mind what happens is that the mind begins to have really a quality of being able to aim itself with precision so that you can know towards whom you are wishing and what you are wishing and really feel clear about each word that you say and that very quality of clearly aiming the mind knowing what you're saying for whom you're hoping what the quality is that you're hoping that quality of aim wakes up the mind so it's the antidote to torpor and the fifth inherent quality of a concentrated mind is a quality of um sustaining mind doesn't wobble it sustains itself and so it's the natural antidote to doubt so really could think about what to do 
what should I do now, what should I do now? Is there a special antidote for this or that? The special antidote for all of the aversive states is recognizing that they're there, really a moment of mindfulness, and then responding with a moment of kindness, which is really the practice of metta. Don't have to do anything about them, but carry on. I have two teacher stories that I could end with. One is um, I told one of my groups this morning that <clears throat> sometimes we t- we've over the years compared teacher stories and t- talked about well when we studied with so and so we would um, tell whatever it was had been going on with us and. Uh, sometimes be disappointed in the practice, what we thought we were presenting, and we'd get finished, and the teacher would say, just keep on. And sometimes we'd go with a story of all kinds of things happening, be really pleased with what was happening, be waiting for them to be really pleased. They'd say, just keep on. Sometimes I thought, maybe it's through the translator, maybe they're actually saying something else. But actually, I think they were probably saying, just keep on. And it's actually a good instruction. Just keep on. There's another instruction, though, that is a meta instruction from um, my teacher, who used to say, as I was leaving um, an interview, um, I'd have my hand on the doorknob ready to go out, and she'd say, uh, remember, Sylvia, be happy. And I thought for a long time that that was an instruction, Actually, I thought for a long time it was a salutation, like have a good day. It took me a long time to remember that it was, to get it, that it was an instruction. Actually, I got that backwards. I thought it was a salutation, like goodbye. Actually, it's an instruction. It's a very good instruction, so I give it to you as well. The way it worked for me is I'd be going around through the day, making my resolves, thinking I was making my resolves, suddenly into the space of making the resolve, quite unbid, certainly, and sometimes unheeded, here comes a whole storm of mind and a whole story about it. This is not only the storm, but the story about it and all kinds of elaborations on the story about it and a worry about the story about it. And by and by, the mind is getting tighter and tighter. And all of a sudden, realize that I'm uncomfortable and into my mind would float the voice of my teacher who would say, remember, Sylvia, be happy. I think to myself, I'm not happy. And then I would say, may I be free of danger? May I have mental happiness? May I have physical happiness? May I have ease of well-being? And again, and again, and again. And it stops the story, and it soothes the mind and the heart, and you come again to a place of balance, and the poof of the storm, which is just a storm, is gone. Another one will come. But in the meantime, what we touch each time, that we are able to discover a moment of peace and a moment of, a moment of tranquil and alert, a moment of tranquil and alert in which the heart is inclined with benevolence, then we know it's true. We can do that don't need to have more than a moment of it to know that it's one of the things that is our birthright.
let's say what I'm here to do for these couple of weeks is just increase my familiarity with that birthright. May it be so for all of us that we all increase our familiarity. Let's sit for a minute. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Insight Meditation Society on February 7, 1999. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.